Good morning, Sun Valley Church. It's good to see you all here this morning. I want to begin our time together this morning by reading a verse from Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 this morning. It says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. These words came from Jesus' mouth. Most scholars believe that Jesus had the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet in mind when he said this. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Yod. It's visually similar to the English apostrophe. The two-letter word on the screen that you see is Yod and is the Hebrew word for hands that's used in verse 73. The word Yod begins with the letter Yod in Hebrew, and of course we read it from right to left. And as I've mentioned to you before, this stanza is called the Yod stanza, and every sentence in the Yod stanza begins with the letter Yod. And this is the case with each of the um, stanzas that we find in Psalm 119, each representing a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But as small as the Yod is in the Hebrew alphabet, physically small, this stanza is not a small matter. It deals with some of life's most important issues for every believer. Let me read this stanza for you. It says this, starting in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. In this stanza, we will see, I will explain to you, that there is sense to be made of our pains and sorrows. They aren't just abstract and random. This, high, this, this stanza will highlight the importance of maintaining a good reputation. How important is your reputation to you? This stanza, the Yod stanza, also will help us understand the influence of our character. Our character influences people around us, beginning with those we live with. This stanza points out the importance of realizing that. And so the stanza begins in verse 73 by telling the reader that God has made us. You see there, your hands have made and fashioned me. God is shaping your character. The New English Bible translates the verse like this, you have made me what I am. Not only has God created and fashioned us, not only is he shaping our character, it seems according to scripture that he has stamped his own image on each and every human being. It says so in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. And so the image of God is stamped on each and every human being. As we read Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. But Psalm 119, verse 73, would say that man declares his image. The heavens may declare his glory, but man declares his image. Man is intended to be a picture of what God is like. You remember the vision that Isaiah had in chapter 6 of, of Isaiah? 
And in verse 3 it says this, And one called, that is one of the seraphim, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. As we've thought about this verse, I'm certain that we think of, of natural things, inanimate things that make up the glory of the Lord, like a picturesque view of Mount Rainier or a, a beautiful sunset or sunrise. That's what this verse means, I think, many of us think. But I want to suggest that what Isaiah had in mind is that the earth is full of God's glorious image bearers. The earth is full of people who were made to image God. Verse 73 says that God is in the business of creating His divine character in His creatures, in mankind. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that I just read for you, it says that God created us, the pinnacle of His creation, with His own image. Now, God's image doesn't reside in rocks or turtles, but in humans. The image of God, which original man had, was severely tainted, though. When man fell into sin, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, so the original beauty, glory, and likeness of that image of God was tainted. Now we are born as sinners. Now sin is natural to us, not unnatural as it was to Adam and Eve. Instead of God's glorious reflection, there is now but a faint whisper of God's image in natural man. In God's great and ongoing plan of human history, He determined in eternity past to recast His image into those who would believe on His Son, who would embrace Jesus Christ. The question is, how is God going to do this? Well, this stanza answers that important question and tells us about how the recast, reformed, and renewed image comes to be and the function of this new image. In this stanza, titled with the smallest of Hebrew letters, I want you to see how God creates and uses a godly person. I want you to see how God creates and uses a godly person. So let's dive into this passage together. And I want to begin by sharing the first point that I have here this morning, and that is this. Point number one, the creation of a godly person. How does God create a godly person? How does He recast his image onto his people. In order to be a godly person, of course, you first must be a person, which makes the original creation an important thing. Every human is created in the image of God. This, of course, is not the physical image of God because God is spirit and has no physical image. Personally speaking, when the psalmist in Psalm 139 spoke of, of God's physical creation in himself, he said this, For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So in our mother's wombs, God was in the, in the process of forming us physically, giving us not only a physical being, but a, a, a character, a personality. This is what God does for each and every human. But I think the focus of this particular stanza that we're in, the Yod stanza, is Regeneration is, I believe that the author's focus is, and intent is the spiritually renewed individual. This is the one of, this reality, the spiritually renewed individual is one of the fundamental truths of the New Testament. You, you can't get through any book without coming across this idea that God is in the business of recasting His image in His people. Let me share with you some of these um, New Testament ideas. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
Paul said this to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. We're being transformed into the image of Christ our Savior. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self, Paul said, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And who is our creator? Well, Hebrews 1 says it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator of all things. And so, according to what we read in the New Testament, God is in the business of reforming, reshaping, recasting His image on His people, on you and me. In God's great and ongoing plan of human history, He determined in eternity past to recast His image into those who would be regenerated by His Holy Spirit through the Word of God to grow into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. This recasting of God's image is a supernatural work of God by grace through the instrumentality of God's Word. This is what Jesus said in John 17, 17. Jesus prayed that the Father would sanctify us or recast us by His Word. And then He said, Your Word is truth. James chapter 1, verse 18 speaks of this also. It says, Of God's own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth. What's that mean? Well, God Himself brought us forth, gave us spiritual life as recasting His image in us by the Word of God. Somehow, in a mystical and supernatural way, God uses His Word to shape and form His image in His people. This, this argues for the importance of you being saturated with the Word of God. So we can say, to wrap up this point, that the creation of a godly person begins by a Scripture-saturated act of God. The Apostle Peter saw it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Peter said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, found in His Word, may I add, so that through them, through the Word of God, through the great and precious promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through the Word of God, God exercises His grace in creating His nature, restamping His image on us, His people. Back to Psalm 119, the Yod stanza, verse 80. We see that the zenith of our new creation is found in a blameless character. Look at verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, the author says. Blameless, of course, the word blameless is an important word as it relates to our sanctification, isn't it? The concept is, is clearly taught in, in Scripture. Positional blameless, if I may call it that, is immediate. The moment we put our trust in Christ, we are positionally blameless before God the Father but progressive in our experience as we grow in Him. You and I know that we are not actually practically blameless as we sit here this morning, but we know that before the Father we are positionally blameless because of what Christ has done. He has granted to us His righteousness, a perfect righteousness. But as we go through the Christian life, as we live day to day, we know because of our sin and our struggle with temptation that this becoming blameless is a progressive thing. Our goal is to be more and more like Christ the longer we live. We hope to see more consistency in our attitudes and actions than we saw last year at this time. We want to be more loving, more kind, more sincere, more joyful. As dependent as we are on God's original act of creation for our physical existence, 
Friends, we are just as dependent on him for our spiritual existence. This was the point of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. How dead was Lazarus? Well, he was four days dead. He was dead, dead. He wasn't partly dead. He was all dead. He had no ability to bring about any changes to his circumstances or his experience. It took the creator of life, Jesus Christ, to regenerate him physically, to get his blood flowing, his heart pumping, his brain recharged. Our godliness in both origin and progress requires an act of God similar to what took place in Lazarus' experience. So after God breathes spiritual life into our souls, how does he cause growth? Well, this stanza that we're studying this morning tells us in verse 75. Look what it says. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I've titled this point, this subpoint here, by sanctifying affliction. I want to say, by scripture saturated sanctifying affliction. Notice that the author ties together God's rules or God's word to righteousness, to, to sanctifying affliction. God's word perfectly guides our hearts to understand and appreciate God's activity in our lives, especially when we're going through hard times. Those who are able to handle life's challenges are those who are familiar with God's righteous word. Friends, I encourage you not to be found in a trial without having the word of God washed over your mind. Oh, what a dark day that is, friends, when you encounter difficulty and trial and are wanting when it comes to the word of God. If you have doubted whether or not the Bible teaches that our difficulties and trials come from the hand of God, look closely at verse 75. It clearly states that all of our afflictions are designed by God to accomplish his purposes. You can't arrive at spiritual maturity without hardship and trials. How many times have we heard this over the past year or so here at Sun Valley Church as we've studied through James, as we studied through Psalm 119? The only road from here to there, from our current spiritual condition to spiritual maturity, is through hard times. And it's at hard times, it seems at times, that God is silent along the way. But he says this in verse 75, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, what a comforting thought that is. In faithfulness, God, you have afflicted me. This means that our trials aren't random or haphazard. God carefully orchestrates our trials and suffering to bring about godliness and all the accompanying qualities. If you're going through a particularly difficult trial and are tempted to think that God isn't paying attention, this stanza encourages you to think again. You might think that you are past your breaking point and are unable to withstand one more day. Well, think again. The God who holds the stars in place and controls the weather on all planets and plans and controls the course of human history, including the rising up and taking down of kings and kingdoms, can and does know your circumstances intimately. Remember that he knows the number of hairs on your head. And for some of you, that's getting easier by the day. <laughs> he knows exactly when you lie down to sleep and when you get up to start your day. Friends, this God, this faithful God, has put in place a careful, perfect, and personalized plan designed for your growth in Christ-likeness. You can trust him. We can follow him. So, so God creates a godly person 
first of all, by an act, a Scripture-saturated scripture act of God. Then he does so by Scripture-saturated sanctifying affliction. And here finally, by Scripture-saturated divine care. Look at verse 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. This truth is very important for you, especially when you feel like you're just about to go under for the last time. Friends, this verse communicates clearly that God is a compassionate God. He is a faithful God. He is a good and kind God. He is a God who has steadfast love for his people. 2 Corinthians 1 is a familiar verse to many who've gone through difficulty. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Friends, not only does this verse teach the encouraging truth that God is compassionate and merciful, but it teaches that you'll survive your trial, whatever it may be, and be able to help others as they go through it. You'll make it through. So hang on. Hang on to Christ. Trust Him. Affliction and then comfort is what we see in this passage. Just like godly parents, they discipline or afflict their children and then immediately comfort their children. God is a compassionate God who may take us through difficulty, dark times, deep water, but He will always walk with us. He will always encourage us and comfort us along the way. In verse 77, we see that the psalmist pleads for mercy in his afflictions. It says, let your mercy come to me that I may live. It's almost as if he thinks he's about to die and not able to handle any more pressure. You know, as we've talked a lot about the importance of going through trials in Psalm 119 and James, we've discovered the trials are not enemies to be feared or run from, but to be patiently endured and maybe even embraced. Why? Why do we talk such ways? Because of what afflictions and trials produce in those of us who follow Christ. The Bible tells it produces humility, patience, steadfastness, empathy, dependence, strength, godliness. Which is a, a point here in this stanza. What I see in verse 77 though is although that God is compassionate and has an objective in our suffering and affliction, he's not opposed to our request of mercy within that affliction. I was personally happy to come across this because of the times I've been through difficulties. I'm generally quick, like you, to seek relief, even though I feel uncomfortable asking for it because I know that the blessing and objective of suffering is an experience when it's removed. So it's a battle in my mind as to when to ask for mercy from God or ask for relief from the trial that I'm in. I'll leave the timing of your request for mercy and relief between you and God. The second main point that I want to cover in this stanza is this, the impact of a godly person. Not only the creation of a godly person, but the impact. I want to focus particularly on verses 74 and 79. How does our godly character affect those in our lives? How does our character affect those in our lives, even if it's not godly? How does, how does your godliness or lack thereof affect your family, your children, your parents, your spouse, your co-workers? Your relationships at school? Well, it does. Your character impacts people around you, whether or not you understand that. Let's look, first of all, 
at the impact of a good reputation. Look at verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. It seems that God works, that as God works in us to form his image and accompanying qualities, it impacts those around us. Last week we heard from David Palmer who laid out the new clothes concept in Colossians 3 that describe a godly individual. These clothes were things like compassion, kindness, humility, patience, etc. Well, as you read through the New Testament in Paul's letters, he speaks about these qualities of that new creation often. These qualities result in a good reputation with everyone. I mean, who doesn't want to be around someone who's compassionate, kind, humble, and patient? We're all drawn to that. We all hope for that kind of reputation. As we read of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we realize that included is a requirement to have a good reputation. And, and by the way, these qualities aren't reserved for some spiritually elite or, or something like that. There's something that God desires to build into each and every true believer. They're part of this recasting of the image of Jesus Christ in us. We are all to strive to be above reproach, to be dignified, to be gentle, to be hospitable. These are not just expected of elders. God desires that all of us have good reputations like Christ. In verse 79, we see that this kind of person attracts people also. It says, let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. We are all naturally drawn to this kind of an individual. And we all look forward to hearing their advice and spending time with them to grow like them. A good reputation. Now I want to share the second sub-point here, which is very similar to the first, and that is a godly influence. So the impact of a godly person should first be a good reputation, but that good reputation carries with it a godly influence. Look what it says godliness produces in verse 74. Those who fear you shall see me and what? Rejoice. Godliness produces joy in those around you. And then verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. What's that mean? Godliness produces godliness in others. So as you pursue godliness, as you pursue Christ's likeness, as, as the Holy Spirit imprints on your character and soul the image of Jesus Christ, it produces joy in those in your life. It produces godliness in those in your life. Do you want those in your life to experience more joy and grow in godliness? If so, then... One way of doing that is to grow in godliness yourself. Nothing could be truer than the impact parents' holiness and godliness have on their children. It produces joy and godliness in the next generation, which is what every Christian parent desires of their children. And so I want you to think about your reputation in your home, in your place of work, at school, in your community. Does it reflect Jesus? I think we should think of this when we're getting ready for work or school. Think of it as we're driving along the way. Think of it as we're emailing or posting on Facebook. Is your life, are your actions, are your attitudes a sweet and winsome reflection of Jesus Christ, the one whose image is being imprinted on us daily by the Holy Spirit? And the longer you live as a Christian, the more you should be influencing others. Is that happening? Are those in your life more joyful, more godly because of your godliness? Are they more or less joyful or godly because you were in their lives? 
Do you create a desire in those around you to be more like Jesus? Oh, friends, may this be true of us today. Pray with me. Father, make this true of us. Help us to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to those in our lives, to those we love, to those we live with, to those we work with, to those we go to school with. Oh, God, please, please break through any barriers that we may put up that would, that would restrict the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Break through these selfish, short-sighted perspectives that we have that, that keep us from growing in godliness. God, do your work in us. Bless us in the Holy Spirit. Bless us with the further imprinting of the, the character of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, on us. God, make us a people that reflect Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.